Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs. Welcome to The Great America Show. Great to have you with us as we all seek to preserve truth, justice, and, of course, the American way. It is uphill work these days, I'll admit, for all of us who care about this great country and our fellow citizens and our future. We're a nation in the clutches of the Marxist Dems now. They control the Democrat Party, this puppet president, the White House, Congress, the Senate, and those Marxists control as well the deep state, the bureaucrats throughout our federal government, the so-called administrative state, and of course they control our judiciary. Yes, our courts as well, with one possible but important exception, the Supreme Court. And that is a highly unreliable exception, and will remain so as long as John Roberts remains the Chief Justice of the High Court. Roberts was once mercurial, but now he's migrated even further leftward, and one or two conservative judges have wobbled a bit over the past year. Just a bit, but enough to be concerning. So here we are, four weeks from Election Day. Millions of illegals are pouring into our country. The Mexican drug cartels own both sides of the border. Inflation is roaring. Our economy is stalling. Our markets are depressed. And so are our 401ks. Three-fourths of Americans say that the United States is going in the wrong direction. And the White House right now trying to take back Biden's nuclear Armageddon remarks. And his pal Zelensky has Ukraine frantically trying to walk back Zelensky's call for preemptive strikes against Russia. Two idiots who are now what passed for leaders. God help us. Oh, and Joe Biden intimidating the U.S. attorney in Delaware. That's what President Biden was up to when he was caught, quote-unquote, accidentally saying into a hot mic that, quote, nobody Fs with a Biden. That's a pretty clear signal, don't you think, to the U.S. attorney in Delaware to go easy on his son Hunter. After four years of investigation, tax evasion, and corruption of all kinds, after that warning, don't be surprised if the U.S. attorney does a plea deal of jaywalking for Hunter. It is all corrupt. It is all sickening. And now, here we go, heading into the most important midterm elections in our history. And despite Republicans gaining new voters from Hispanics and Blacks and a prediction of a red wave, President Biden says the Marxist Dems will hold the Senate, maybe pick up a seat or two. Pelosi says the Dems will keep the House as well. What do they know that you and I don't? What do they know that American voters don't? You don't suppose we're in for another rigged election, do you? Well, I'm not sure the Republicans learned a thing from 2020. One of the people who's learning lots is a former top Justice Department official in the Trump administration. Our guest today is Jeffrey Clark. Jeffrey is a distinguished attorney, former U.S. Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Division. He's now a senior fellow and director of litigation at the Center for Renewing America. Jeffrey, great to have you with us. You've been researching the claims of 
former Attorney General Bill Barr, who said the DOJ had done a thorough investigation of the 2020 election and found no evidence of fraud or wrongdoing. Tell us, if you will, what you've found. Sure, Lou. Well, again, thanks for uh, for having me. I'm very honored to be invited back. So uh, this story about uh, the former AG Barr and uh, the 2020 election, uh, I think, is a good place to start is with a November 9th, uh, 2020 memo that Barr issued. And that memo created, you know, a firestorm, shockwaves uh, in the media, because basically what it did was it changed uh, or, or purported to change pre-existing DOJ policy that elections would be investigated really only after they had occurred and been fully certified, which obviously is a recipe for nothing really to happen. And so the November 9th memo swept that policy away, it would seem, saying uh, that uh, such a passive and delayed enforcement approach, and I'm quoting, can result in situations in which election misconduct cannot realistically be rectified. Okay, so that was the directive in November 9th uh, to investigate what had gone on in the uh, election six days prior. It created a lot of uh, you know, media attention. It led to the resignation of a uh, career official um, in protest of the memo. And so you know, it looked like the election was gonna be investigated uh, you know, with a lot of thoroughness. And one of the sources I would point your listeners to is that the Carol Leonic book, um, along with their co-author, says that, you know, Barr pledged to the president that uh, he would have, you know, investigators jumping on anything that came to light. So that's the, the public-facing memo and the public, you know, as paralleled internally by apparently what was said to the president, although I was not in the room for that based on the book. So what's come to light recently, I think, are three uh, uh, big, you know, cracks in that uh, armor of what the public, you know, facing policy was. And, you know, I think that's what you're referring to had been making right. some waves lately. So, I, you know, do you want me to march through those three or sure. do you want to ask yes. anything about the November 9 memo? Do you have any idea what the motivation was for that extraordinary departure from what had been uh, Justice Department uh, canon uh, and uh, and already uh, the president, the, the attorney general knew that Joe Biden had lied and had chosen not to intervene. Uh, so we have that background conflict uh, after the debate, uh, the second debate and final debate of the 2020 election in uh, in late October. We also have the conflict that obviously the FBI dispatched its agents uh, to go to big media, uh, social media, big tech, and shut down the October 14th story reported by the New York Post, uh, revealing the Hunter Biden laptop and much of its content. Uh, I, I just want to get some sort of sense from you uh, of context there around those uh, preceding events as well. So, Lou, on, on that question, let me first react to the uh, news that Mark Zuckerberg met with Joe, uh, that he revealed on Joe Rogan, that basically during the election season, the FBI had come to Facebook and uh, talked about the Hunter Biden laptop story. And as a result of that, uh, Facebook agreed to censor that story using its algorithms uh, to throttle it. 
I mean, that's just amazing at both ends. You know, if you think of it as a football pass, both, uh, you know, the pass and then the reception of the pass. First, the FBI coming to a tech giant and saying you should censor uh, is or should be unthinkable in America and a total violation of the First Amendment to say nothing of the election interference that it represents. But second, that the, the tech giant would hear that and, and then acquiesce in it and say, okay, uh, as opposed to saying, you know, look, you're, you're from the government. You can't tell us what to say or not say or what to use our platform for. So it's just an amazing story. Um, and your, your larger question, Lou, had been, do I have any theories about why the, uh, the memo was issued? I mean, I, I, as compared to the older policy, I think the older policy, just to start with that, is wrong and the memo's right to have revoked that policy. Uh, it's the kind of thing that the deep state puts in place, right? That there's nothing that can be done about an election until afterwards. Then that really leaves uh, them to work, you know, behind the scenes in a way that is not as publicly transparent to decide what election problems they're going to investigate and potentially try to penalize in which they're just going to leave off to the side. Absolutely. So, uh, the, yeah, the policy, you know, the policy change, I think, is a good one. And the criticism of the policy change by the media, I think, was, you know, very wrongheaded. But the issue, you know, based on especially on what's come to light is, was that a formal policy that sat on a shelf or was it actually something that energized real action behind the scenes at the Justice Department? And I think the new evidence is, is showing that uh, it was the latter. It was it's just something kind of sitting there, but not something actually really being used. And with that, uh, that memo, uh, the issue becomes, what was the investigation? Because subsequently, uh, Bill Barr announces that they found nothing of, uh, of scale or, or merit that could have changed the outcome of the election, I believe was at least the intention of his remarks. Uh, uh, but you found evidence that indicates that there was no basis for that statement on the part of the attorney general. So maybe just to cover them in chronological order, sure. the first the first one happened in June of last year. The U.S. attorney in Philadelphia, which is the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, William McSwain, he wrote to President Trump, and he basically said that he had significant evidence of election uh, fraud or irregularities, and he wanted to investigate. He wanted to have a press conference about it, and uh, Barr told him not to do that. Um, and uh, so that's very strange, right? And he also told him, turn over any evidence you do have to the uh, Democrat AG in Pennsylvania and let him investigate it, uh, which is interesting in light of what I'll describe as the, as the second crack in the armor. But let me first pause there and say, look, uh, McSwain really had proved his credentials in being an official who would energetically go after election fraud. Uh, in fact, that was again in the news this week with this uh, this congressman uh, Davis, Ozzie uh, uh, Davis, got convicted of uh, of election crimes and was sent to Ozzie Myers. I'm sorry, not Davis, uh, who was convicted of election crimes, sentenced uh, to 30 months in prison, $100,000 fine for uh, you know, violating uh, civil rights, bribery, obstruction of justice, falsifying voting records, conspiring uh, uh, to illegally vote in a federal election, and then to orchestrate schemes to fraudulently stuff the ballots. And who was it who prosecuted 
and, and you know, uh, uh, got uh, across the finish line on that case, it was the same Bill McSwain who said, look, I got something on the 2020 election too. This case with, uh, with Myers actually involved 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, and 2018 fraud, Lou. So oh uh, when 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 Bill McSwain comes to bar and says, "Look, I got I got another big one. Uh, let me go forward," and he's denied the ability to do that. That's a major contradiction of the official story, and that the November 9th memo was really being followed. That is extraordinary, and would turn it over to the state attorney general. There were lots of questions at that point. I should remind everyone about the, uh, let's say, the electoral integrity of uh, the great state of Pennsylvania, and also about both the executive and legislative uh, branches of their state government, uh, it was very unclear uh, exactly what was transpiring uh, and just how, uh, let me say, uh, motivated uh, they were to correct wrongs and to prevent uh, wrongs in the uh, election of 2020. Is that a fair statement, Jeffrey? That's a fair statement. And, and let me quote for you what McSwain uh, said to uh, President Trump about that. President Trump, you were right to be upset about the way the Democrats ran the 2020 election in Pennsylvania. It was a partisan disgrace. The governor, the secretary of the Gulf, and the partisan state Supreme Court made up their own rules and did not follow the law. And the fact, Lou, that the, those rules were being made up on the fly and they were different from the rules that were set by the legislature, which is the way our Constitution works, they're the ones who have the power to, uh, to set those rules, um, you know, that's an issue that he wanted to investigate. And again, he was denied the ability to do that uh, by bar, despite what the November 9th memo had said to the world openly. Uh, and to press further with this, the... Do we know what the evidence was that moved McSwain uh, to to send his uh, message to the president uh, and to seek to prosecute, uh, which Bill Barr told him he could not? We do not uh, really know well what that evidence is. Now, in the you know what I'll call the third crack in the armor, um, uh, which, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get to hopefully after the second crack, but in the third crack in the armor, which involves FOIA revelations, the one FOIA that has not yet been responded to is the one to the Eastern District of Pennsylvania where McSwain was the U.S. attorney. So, you know, it's possible that basically that FOIA is being worked over very carefully because it should reveal the information that uh, McSwain was looking at in response to the November 9th memo from Barr um, but, you know, it's obviously interesting that that one has been sequenced to go last. Sequenced to go last and unresponsive to this point, correct? Well, until it, it's actually responded to, right, when the sequence is finished, you won't know whether how it responds to this point, right? It's a, it's right. a black box at this point. Um, but but so, the 11 other districts did respond. Uh, makes it curious about what the only district that we've the public knows there was an issue, uh, is the one not responding. I, I, how much weight should we give that? So, okay, we uh, then I'll, I'll take, I'll call that the second uh, crack in the armor then, um, even though it's it's more recent, um, which is that uh, there is a uh, individual who does a lot of FOIA work. Uh, he has a Twitter account calling himself FOIA fan. 
Um, I find uh, evidence that he has been issuing FOIAs since uh, 2010 at the at the earliest potentially, um, but he's been around for a long time. And he uh, filed the FOIA to 12 DOJ components spread across seven states. And I think the theory was to focus it on the battleground states in the 2020 election. And he basically asked, okay, what did you do with the November 9th memo in practice? And he has gotten responses from 11 of the 12 components. And 11 of the components basically returned with the goose egg, you know, zero, nothing. Um, and the only one that has not yet responded, as we've been talking about, is the Eastern District of Pennsylvania that was headed up at the time by Bill McSwain, who wrote to Barr about how he was told basically to shut down his investigation or at the very least turn it over to the state AG in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And all of this points to no evidence whatsoever of any investigation in those in those districts. That is the takeaway from the responses uh, from uh from those districts, uh, but what is also what else are we to take away from the fact that the one instance where publicly we know that there was a, a U.S. attorney who wanted to investigate but was told no, uh, how does that square up with with Bill Barr saying that there was no evidence uh, of any wrongdoing uh, and his pledge to the president to go after any any uh, issue whatsoever and investigate it thoroughly? It seems to be highly contradictory, Lou, uh, and so I see why you asked that question. It looks like this stands in stark contrast, right? There's a stark contrast between uh, the memo directive and the, and the plea that, uh, you know, everything was investigated thoroughly versus the idea that these FOIA requests are coming up empty. One thing uh, that the attorney general could do and one thing, the, you know, a good media could do would be to hold his feet to the fire to ask him why is there that discrepancy and kind of force an answer. Another thing is that the current leadership of DOJ, they could release the investigative files from each of those areas if for some reason, you know, they withheld them or, you know, for some reason they thought there was material that, you know, did bear on investigating the election, but they somehow thought that the FOIA didn't call for it. It's a possibility, but I would think you'd want to see that dispelled. Maybe the new Congress, when they come in, and, and especially the House, uh, if that goes as is being predicted, you know, they could focus the light of oversight on those questions and get the Justice Department to, to really open up the files and show what was investigated, Lou. Jeffrey, I want to, I want to go to that issue of oversight and what we are hearing from uh, members of the House Judiciary, in particular, the ranking member, uh, Jim Jordan, about what they will do. But I also want to focus, uh, if we may, for a moment here. Wouldn't there be a natural aversion to on, on the part of the current administration uh, and it, in control of the Justice Department to withholding any evidence that would uh, uh, contradict Bill Barr. The last thing they want to do is to answer honestly the question, was the election of 2020 rigged? It seems to me that Bill Barr, either by accident or purpose uh, or intent, has aligned himself with this administration. Uh, they are perfectly aligned in wanting to keep from the American public any evidence of wrongdoing, any evidence of uh, 
any impropriety uh, that uh, uh, will be embarrassing to the establishment, uh, if you will, in the way in which the 2020 election uh, was carried out. So, Lou, I, I think that would be their institutional incentive, but that's where you know, you have to watch up for the, the oversight to see whether it really has teeth to it or not. I mean, clearly we've seen, uh, you know, crocodile sharp teeth uh, from the Democrats on the January 6th committee in terms of, you know, their purported exercise of oversight. I really think it's a, it's a, uh, it's a witch hunt and it's an attempt to penalize opponents of, uh, of their party. But, um, and I'm surely they're going to say that in reverse if the Republicans take over the House. But, you know, there does need to be muscular oversight, and I think that the Republicans will conduct it with due process, right? They're not going to jury rig up committees that don't have uh, Democrats on it, um, you know, denied to the uh, minority the ability to pick, you know, the minority, uh, the you know, the ranking member, et cetera. They're not going to deny the ability of uh, minority counsel to question witnesses and the like. They just, you know, I think they're going to want to get to the truth. But I think if they're stonewalled and the Justice Department says, we're not going to give that to you because it's investigative, um, and we've seen a lot of, you know, oversight like that being conducted by, you know, minority questioning about, uh, you know, people like Ray Epps and the like, where they just stonewall and say, like, you know, we can't talk about that or we don't know what you're talking about, or sometimes now they've defaulted to, you know, there's no there's no problem there. Why don't you leave the guy alone? Um, you know, I think the Republicans are going to have to roll up their sleeves and be tough and push back to actually penetrate into the files. It, it, it you know, seems similar to me, Lou, to the idea that there's kind of a constructive narrative. The constructive narrative is that the Justice Department in the 2020 election investigated incredibly thoroughly and found nothing, and then Barr threw up his hands, right? And then in terms of election lawsuits that were filed by President Trump's campaign, the official narrative is 60 lawsuits plus failed, ergo, there was nothing there. But the real stories are obviously more complicated. As we're exploring here about the Justice Department, there was a memo that said to the world things were being investigated thoroughly, but there's more and more evidence that it was not. Um, and I do want to say something to you about the the, uh, the testimony of Heidi Sturrup, the White House liaison to the Justice Department. Sure. And then on the issue of the 60 lawsuits, um, most of those lawsuits, as you know, Lou, were dismissed, you know, for what lawyers call justiciability reasons, that there was no standing or the like. They weren't resolutions on the merits where the judges confronted all the evidence and said, no, this didn't happen, or no, the evidence is all bunkum. Basically, the lawsuits were thrown out at a threshold stage. Um, and the merits were not plumbed into. So the, the official narrative, whether it's about the lawsuits or whether it's about the Justice Department's investigations, is really all wet at this point. Yeah, and let's, let's go into that a bit, because, uh, as you say, those 60 lawsuits in each, nearly every case, it was about standing, uh, which is an alien concept to most of us who are uh, uh, laymen, uh, who are not lawyers, uh, and, and that may sound fine and satisfactory to lawyers, but to the rest of us, it, it sounds like pure, uh, pure nonsense. Uh, we, you have a conflict, uh, whether it, you know it's the state of Texas versus Pennsylvania, uh, which the U, the U.S. Supreme Court wouldn't take up, but it looks on its face to be a, an important case that should have been resolved in a conflict. Uh, that could only be resolved by the Supreme Court. And, and most of us know that the Supreme Court is where states go to resolve their conflicts, and, and we're all left scratching our heads 
uh, as we are about so much of what transpired in 2020. So let's go to that issue of standing, if you will, and 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 give all of us, uh, uh, all of us uh, who are not in the Spice Guild, uh, who are not lawyers, some understanding of how you could, every one of these courts could just say, well, you don't have standing, and therefore we're not going to pay attention to the evidence, we're not going to deal with a conflict, and we're certainly going to be no part of resolution, uh, if you don't mind. Sure, Lou. Well, first of all, I really applaud the Dune reference. Uh, that's one of my favorites. Uh, but um, let, let me let me meet uh, that level of erudition, Lou, with with a little bit on uh, you know defending lawyers about standing, but then say you know why why I think that really brings the spotlight back on the Justice Department. Uh, so you know, standing is really an ancient concept, and the concept is because our court system goes back to our English forebears. Um, you know, that if something was not cognizable at the courts of Westminster, then it's not really something courts should be dealing with, right? Courts are not like many legislators, uh, legislatures or many presidents. They really only deal with individual cases or controversies that are brought to them. So if amorphous fights are brought to them, that's really something that the courts should stay out of. And, and having done a lot of environmental law, there's a lot of environmental law about this because basically a lot of environmentalists are really just kind of officious intermeddlers who, you know, don't really have skin in the game. They argue that they do, but they're trying to, to just basically make political points that they lost in the legislature or that they lost in the rulemaking process. So standing is very important to kind of guard the line and not have the courts really become the dictators of the United States. Now, that being said, I think, as you were pointing out, that the Texas case that was filed has left, it's, uh, you know, I don't think it makes any sense standing that seven justices said, uh, you know, was the problem in that case, because you're basically talking about, you know, red states like Texas saying, look, Pennsylvania is unlawfully changing their rules in violation of the federal constitution. And the federal constitution is essentially a pact among the states about how we're going to run the game uh, of the election. And so we follow the rules. They didn't follow the rules. And now, you know, the, the president that one party in those states favored has been elected. I, I really don't see how that is something that there's no standing for. And clearly there were two justices, Thomas and Alito, who, who dissented from that. So while I'm generally a defender of the standing doctrine, I think that it was misapplied in that situation. But this is a very good way to actually bring it back to the Justice Department, Lou, because the Justice Department can investigate and pursue. It doesn't have to show itself that it has standing, right? It has the power to investigate election irregularities and the November 9th memo, you know, uh, amplified that authority. So there was no standing barrier at all for the Justice Department. So if the Justice Department doesn't have that barrier, you know, what's its excuse for not having really thoroughly looked into all the problems of the election? Why is it telling uh, U.S. Attorney McSwain not to investigate? And the, the other thing, I'll, uh, this was the second uh, chink in the armor, the White House liaison, Heidi Stirrup, testified in litigation in federal court in D.C. that she got a meeting with uh, Attorney General Barr, and she asked him what he was doing about the election. And uh, he basically said, here's the, I'll read you this uh, key paragraph from her affidavit. It's uh, number 17, paragraph 17. I testified that I asked Attorney General Barr what was being done about the highly irregular election activities. When I specifically asked if the department had done anything, Mr. Barr told me no. 
He then told me, quote, there's no federal role in elections. They are run by the states. If fraud is brought to a U.S. attorney, they have the authority to investigate. He assured me that no matter how much alleged fraud was brought forward, no investigation would take less than two years and the election would not be overturned. Um, so I think that's pretty remarkable too. And note as well that it professes that the U.S. attorneys can investigate, but the prior year we learned in 2021 that Bill McSwain was told not to investigate. So there are kind of contradictions within contradictions in terms of what's going on inside the halls of the building. At this juncture, I have to ask, and I, and I have to say, we appreciate you taking us through all of this. It's complex. Uh, it is difficult. Uh, I know it's easy for you and other attorneys, but it's difficult for most of us to understand uh, the uh, even the architecture of our court system sometimes, let alone uh, it, it, its process uh, and, and and conclusions, uh, whether they be resolutions or not. Uh, so I do appreciate that, Jeffrey. I want to I want to ask you as well, uh, as we look at the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court twice turned down uh, what I see as an obligation. I think most Americans see it as an obligation to resolve these conflicts uh, and to take up evidence. Where are we now? What is the way forward? Uh, I know you working uh, at the, uh, the Center for Renewing America uh, are doing a great deal. Give us a sense of what the next steps are and how do we get to the truth of the matter if we can. Sure. Well, I, I think one ingredient, obviously, is uh, healthy, uh, vigorous House oversight coming in 2023, as we talked about. Um, I think that's vital. I think the continued expansion of the alternative press is very important because it's what breaks down these narratives, right? You know, sadly, it, it sometimes breaks them down too slowly, uh, you know, before they take hold with a lot of folks who are busy, right? And they're raising their families, they're going to work, they're, especially in an inflation-ridden economy, they're trying to make ends meet, right? They don't, they don't have time to probe into things like, uh, you know, the courts at Westminster or how Article Three standing works under federal law, right? They, they just are essentially given kind of quick talking points on, on TV, um, but more and more people are realizing they can't trust that alternative media and uh, sorry, can't trust the mainstream media and they're turning to alternative media in order to combat that. Um, so I think those are two of the ingredients. And then, you know, I would say, look, you know, we're, we're seeing the weaponization of investigative powers against political opponents of, of one party. And that really needs to be pushed back on. And one of the things that the Center for Renewing America has really been uh, calling for and trying to spearhead is uh, a new church committee for the 2020s that would investigate all the facets of the, uh, the deep state uh, you know, intelligence apparatus, whether that's the FBI or the CIA or other aspects of the intelligence community and try to put it back on a better track so we don't see things like Mar-a-Lago being raided we don't see, uh, you know, pro-life activists having, you know, uh, more than a dozen agents show up when, you know, their uh, knock at the door from one or two agents would have been enough. Um, and, you know, so that, you know, we're not seeing parents, uh, you know, being uh, exposed to the national security apparatus simply for complaining about, you know, what the curriculum is in their schools or, you know, how uh, they're opposed to transgender bathrooms or they're worried that, you know, their sons or daughters are going to be uh, attacked or, 
somehow assaulted inside schools or, or you know, any of the other manifestations of wokeism that, that we see, um, you know, that, that would be, a, you know, I think a, a select committee uh, is what we've advocated so that it could declassify documents, it could expose what's going on inside these agencies and bring it to light because light, the sunlight's the best disinfectant loop. I, I and I think that's a, a, a terrific uh, direction in which to go. I think it's the the way forward. Uh, it's the righteous way forward. What I fear is that the Republicans have neglected uh, to assure electoral integrity uh, in November. We're now just over a month away. Uh, we're looking at uh, some, uh, you know, at this uh, prospect. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but a prospect that is uh, just as likely uh, to be as evil as 2020. Uh, and that troubles all of us uh, deeply. Uh, I want to say, Jeffrey, as always, it's it's great to have you with us. I hope you will come back soon and, and let's continue this conversation on both our courts, the election, the importance of electoral uh, integrity, and uh, obviously, oversight of these weaponized agencies, in particular the FBI, uh, the CIA, and uh, the Department of Justice itself. Uh, we uh, we really appreciate uh, everything. I want to give you the last word here today uh, and just say, uh, Jeffrey Clark, uh, uh, Center for Renewing America, thanks for all you're doing for this great country. Well, thank you, Lou. And, uh, you know, I would refer you to the Center for Renewing America's website. We're led by uh, the great Russ Vogt, who was uh, head of OMB in the Trump administration. Uh, we're engaged in a lot of uh, key projects, uh, projects, including fighting the invasion at the border. You can learn more about us there. And, and Lou, I would uh, love to come back. I've enjoyed being with you both of these times. So thank you very much. Great to have you with us, Jeffrey. Thank you. God bless you. Thanks, Lou. God bless you, too. Thanks, everybody, for being with us here tomorrow. Our guest will be Mr. Bill O'Reilly, and we'll be talking politics, of course. Please join us. Till then, God bless you, and may God bless America.